Part two, chapter five A of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen ninety six, departure for Europe. Towards the end of the winter of seventeen ninety five and seventeen ninety six, I had the measles and was quite ill. We were afraid that Umber also would take them, but he did not, although he slept in my room. I soon found myself in good health, and it was at this moment that we received letters from Bonny in France, which informed us that joining his efforts to those of Monsieur de Boucan, he had succeeded in having the sequestration raised at Le Bouille. The property of the persons who had been condemned had been restored. My mother-in-law, in concert with her son-in-law, the Marquis de la Mette, acting in the name of his children, again entered into possession of the estates of Tesson and Ombleville, and of the house at Saint, which the department of Charente and Ferrieux had occupied. But when they requested that the seals should be taken off at Le Bouille, the authorities objected on account of the absence of the proprietor. Our family represented that the owner was living in America with a passport, and that neither my husband nor myself who personally owned a house at Paris, had been inscribed upon the list of emigres. After numerous discussions, they allowed us a delay of a year in which to put in a personal appearance, in default of which Le Bouille will be placed on sale as national property. Our friends therefore urged us to return as soon as possible. Nevertheless, as the stability of the French government inspired even at this time very little confidence, they recommended us at the same time not to take our passage for a French port, but rather to return by way of Spain, with which the Republic had just concluded a peace which seemed likely to be durable. These dispatches fell in the midst of our tranquil occupations, like a firebrand which quickly lighted in the hearts of all around me the thought of a return to their native land. As for myself, I had an entirely different feeling. France had left in my mind only a recollection of horror. There I had lost my youth, which had been broken by terrors the remembrance of which I could not forget. I had not then and I never have had since in my mind but two feelings which entirely and exclusively mastered me, the love of my husband and of my children. Religion, the only motive now for all my actions, commanded me not to oppose the least obstacle to a departure which frightened me and cost me dear. A sort of presentiment caused me to foresee that I was going to encounter a new life of trouble and anxieties. My husband did not dream of the intensity of my regret when I saw the moment of our departure arrive. I imposed only one condition, that of giving our slaves their liberty. My husband consented and reserved for me alone this happiness. These poor people, on seeing the letters arrive from Europe, had feared some change in our life. They were disturbed and alarmed. Therefore all four of them were trembling when they entered my room to which I had called them. They found me alone. 
I said to them with emotion, My friends, we are going to return to Europe. What shall I do with you? The poor creatures were overcome. Judith dropped into a chair in tears, while the three men covered their faces with their hands, and all remained silent. I continued, We have been so satisfied with you that it is just that you should be recompensed. My husband has charged me to tell you that he will give you your liberty. On hearing this word, our good servants were so stupefied that they remained for several seconds without speech. Then all four threw themselves at my feet, crying, Is it possible? Do you mean that we are free? I replied, Yes, upon my honour. From this moment, as free as I am myself. Who can describe the poignant emotion of such a moment? Never in my life had I experienced anything so sweet. Those whom I had just promised their liberty surrounded me in tears. They kissed my hands, my feet, my dress, and then suddenly their joy ceased, and they said, We would prefer to remain slaves all our lives if you would stay here. The following day, my husband took them to Albany before a judge for the ceremony of the manumission, an act which had to be public. All the negroes of the city were present. The justice of the peace, who was at the same time the steward of Mr. Van Rensselaer, was in very bad humour. He attempted to assert that Prime, being fifty years of age, could not, under the terms of the law, be given his liberty, unless he was assured a pension of a hundred dollars. But Prime had foreseen this case, and he produced his certificate of baptism, which attested that he was only forty-nine. They made the slaves kneel before my husband, and he placed his hand upon the head of each to sanction his liberation, exactly in the manner of ancient Rome. We let our dwelling, with the land which surrounded it, to the same individual from whom we had purchased it, and we sold the greater part of our equipment. The horses brought a quite high price. I distributed by way of souvenirs several little articles in porcelain which I had brought from Europe. As for my poor Judith, I left her some old silk dresses which have without doubt been handed down to her descendants. Towards the middle of April 1796 we embarked from Albany to descend to New York, after having paid tender and thankful adieu to all those who for two years had overwhelmed us with tender thoughts, friendship, and kindness of every kind. How many times two years later, when enduring another exile, have I not regretted my farm and my good neighbours? At New York we stayed with Mr. and Mrs. Olive, who received us in their pretty little country house. Here we found Monsieur de Talleyrand, who had decided, like us, to return to Europe. Madame de Stael was back at Paris, where she was living with Benjamin Constant. She urged him to return and enter the service of the directory, which demanded the aid of his ability. For a moment he had thought that he would take his passage upon the same vessel with us, but when he learned our intention to land at a Spanish port, whence we expected to gain Bordeaux, 
he changed his plans and resolved to take passage on a vessel bound for Hamburg. There was no ship leaving for Coruña or for Bilbao in the north of Spain, as we would have wished. Only one boat, a superb English vessel of 400 tons, was going to Cadiz at an early date. For lack of anything better, and in spite of the long journey which we would have to make in Spain, we decided to engage our passage on this vessel. It sailed under the Spanish flag, although it, as well as the cargo, belonged to an Englishman. The proprietor, who was named Mr. Enstall, was to go as a passenger. He was an old ship-owner who had been interested in whaling. He did not know a word of French. The captain, who was originally from Jamaica, also spoke only English, but he soon found a very intelligent interpreter in my son, who, although only six years of age, was of great use to him. While occupying our time with our outfit and our arrangements for the voyage, we passed the three remaining weeks with Mrs. Olive in company with Monsieur de Talleyrand. In the harbour there was a French sloop of war commanded by Captain Barret, his father my husband had known in the household of the old Duc d'Orléans, the father of Philippe Egalité. Although a regular sea-dog, he was a very pleasant man. He came for us every day in his boat and conducted us to every part of the harbour, taking good care never to approach Sandy Hook, where Captain later Admiral Cochrane had waited for two months to capture him if he attempted to come out. We visited his sloop, which was armed with fifteen guns. It was a jewel of order, neatness and care. How I should have loved to have returned to Europe in this fine boat! But the Maria Josepha awaited us. We went on board, my husband, myself, our young son Humbert and Monsieur de Chambeau, the 6th of May, 1796, and the same day we set sail. There were several other passengers on board. Among them was a Monsieur de Labour, an émigré, a former officer of the Constitutional Guard of Louis the Sixteenth, who had escaped from a thousand dangers at the time of the massacres of the 10th of August. As he was from Bordeaux, a kind of attachment was formed between him and my husband. Then there was a French merchant, Monsieur Tisserandeau, and his wife. He had been unfortunate in business at New York and was going to make another attempt at Madrid. His wife was young, sweet, quite well brought up, but lazy. The persons whom I have just named, with Mr. Ensdell and the captain, made up the table in the large salon. I did not suffer from seasickness, and the weather being superb, I was occupied all day long. As soon as I finished the work which I had brought for my husband and myself, I then set up for a general seamstress and announced that anyone could give me work to do. Everyone brought me something. I had shirts to make, cravats to hem and linen to mark. The voyage lasted forty days, because the captain, against the advice of Mr. Ensdell, had taken a southerly course and had been carried away by the currents. This time was sufficient for me to put the wardrobe of everybody on the boat in order. Finally, about the 10th of June, we saw Cape St. Vincent, and the next day we entered the harbour of Cadiz. 
the captain by his stupidity and ignorance had prolonged our voyage by at least fifteen days by allowing himself to be carried towards the coast of africa whence he had a great deal of trouble in returning to the north he believed that he was so far from land that he had not even thought of sending a sailor as a lookout to the top of the mast when he discovered at daybreak cape st vincent which is very high he was entirely disconcerted we were moored alongside a french vessel with three decks the jupiter it was there with a french fleet which had been prevented from going out by the english men of war superior in number which were cruising every day almost in sight of the port we were visited at once by the boat of the health officer who notified us that we would be kept a week on board in quarantine we preferred this to being sent to the lazarette where we would have been devoured by all the numerous insects which are so abundant in spain if we had been able to find a boat which was going to bilbao or barcelona we should have taken passage the voyage thus would have been shorter less tiresome and less expensive the name of monsieur de chambeau had not been erased from the list of emigres and he was not able to return to france he wished to go to madrid where he knew several persons but nevertheless he would have willingly accompanied us as far as barcelona which would have brought him quite near to Arche, a city in which he owned some property the uncertainty of our plans formed the subject of our conversation during the quarantine which lasted ten days and which might have been prolonged even more on account of the desertion of one of our sailors this man of french nationality had been captured in a combat upon a sloop of war he recognized a sailor on board the jupiter which was moored alongside us and spoke to him through a megaphone that same night he swam to the jupiter and when the health officer proceeded to call the roll the following morning no trace of him could be found except his shirt and trousers this was his whole wardrobe this incident prolonged our quarantine until the day that it was ascertained that the fugitive was on the french vessel the quarantine was nearly fatal to me every day sellers of fruit came alongside the boat and i passed my time with madame tisserondeau in lowering a basket by means of a cord in order to obtain figs oranges and strawberries eating this fruit made me very ill finally permission was received to give us our liberty the captain put us on land and never in my life have I been so much embarrassed as at this moment on landing they ordered madame tisserondeau and myself to enter a little room looking out on the street while they examined our effects with the most exaggerated minuteness our coloured dresses and our straw hats soon attracted a large crowd of individuals of every age and of every condition sailors and monks porters and gentlemen all anxious to see what they doubtless considered to be two curious animals as for our husbands they had been detained in the room where our baggage was examined we were therefore alone with my son this indiscreet curiosity decided us my companion and myself immediately to dress like the spanish women even before proceeding to the inn 
we went to purchase black skirts and mantillas so as to be able to go out without scandalising the whole population. We stopped at the hotel which was reputed to be the best at Cadiz, but which was so dirty as to cause me the greatest discomfort, accustomed as I was to the exquisite neatness of America, and I would willingly have returned on board our boat. I happen to remember that one of the sisters of poor Theobald Dillon, massacred at Lille in 1792, had married an English merchant established at Cadiz by the name of Langton. Having written him a polite note, he came at once and was very attentive to us. At that time his wife, with his younger daughter, was at Madrid visiting a married daughter, the Baronne d'Andille. Nevertheless, Mr. Langton invited us to dinner, and even wished to have us stay at his house. But we did not accept, as I was too ill to take the trouble to be polite. It was arranged that the dinner should be put off until the first day that I felt better. The day after our arrival, my husband took our passport to be visaed by the French Consul-General. He was a Monsieur de Roxante a former Comte Marquis, now changed into a hot Republican, if not a terrorist. He asked my husband a hundred questions and made a note of his replies. All this was very much like an examination. Then he suddenly exclaimed, Citizen, we have received today excellent news from France. That rascal Charette has finally been taken and shot. So much the worse, replied Monsieur de la Tour du Pin. He was at least a worthy man. The consul then kept silent and signed the passport, which he reminded my husband it would be necessary to present again to the French ambassador at Madrid. Later we learned the manner in which he had recommended us at Bayonne. End of Part 2, Chapter 5a